All right. Well, today is a big day for us. We find ourselves in Exodus chapter 20, the chapter in which God gives his people his Ten Commandments. Now, don't worry. I'm not going to take 20 minutes for each commandment. Perhaps some other time we'll have a sermon series where we look individually at each of the commands. Today, there's something more important for us to grasp as we look at the Ten Commandments in general. Today we will look at God's heart and his hope behind the Ten Commandments. See, until we understand God's heart and his hope behind his commandments, we will never really understand them or properly desire them. And listen, understanding what we're about to study is perhaps the most foundational thing in your life. Really? Yes, really. As essential as oxygen is for your physical life, even more so, these truths that we study this morning are for your spiritual life. For by them you breathe the fresh air of the gospel with great delight. Now, remember where we last left off. All of God's people, we see in Exodus chapter 19, are gathered around the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. And God has come down in thunder and lightning, and he's come down in fire and in smoke, and he's gathered the people there, and now he speaks to them. Let's begin. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear. For God has come to test you that you may fear of him, that, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words to us. Uh, in many ways, they sound familiar. 
Ten Commandments. Can we move on? But no, we really need to understand your, your heart and your hope for these words, that they may really truly give life to our souls. May you, by your Spirit, speak through your word this morning. May we receive it with joy, we pray. Amen. Polls show that 60% of Americans can, cannot name five of the Ten Commandments. Guess what? Clergy aren't much better. Only 68 out of 200 Anglican priests in England could name all ten of the Ten Commandments. If you're doing the math, that's 34% of them. Chances are a good number of you here this morning could not list them either. Now... The main point of this sermon isn't step up, memorize the Ten Commandments, and do them. In fact, listen, I do not want you to learn the Ten Commandments. That is, I do not want you to learn the Ten Commandments until these two important truths here are crystal clear. These two truths are our two main points this morning. The first is this, the law of God is gracious. And the second is this, the law of God is good. Until these two truths are understood, impressed into your being, you will have a disastrous view of God's commands. Like some today, you will think that God's commands are here to take away your freedom or that they impose upon you some unnecessary rigors or they take away your fun. Or you may think that God gives us his commands so that we can aspire to them, all the while looking down on others as, well, godless reprobates. Or you may think that they're too hard and too heavy and you could never live up to them, therefore you fail to even try. There are so many ways in which we can get God's commands wrong. But our passage here helps us to dismantle these false understandings of the Ten Commandments and why God has given them to his people. And, get, and, and know this, getting the Ten Commandments right changes everything for you. When you get the Ten Commandments right, you have the key uh, to knowing God and, and delighting in him and thereby living a powerful, hopeful, joyful life. So let's take a few moments to get the Ten Commandments right. And when we get the Ten Commandments right, we understand that the law of God is gracious and the law of God is good. First, the law of God is gracious. Understand this. This is the big idea of this point. God does not give us his law so that by them we can work to earn his acceptance. Most people think that the Ten Commandments exist so that people can do them and earn God's acceptance. If you, if, you, if you do them, God accepts you. If you don't do them, he rejects you. And of course, we all think we do a pretty good job of doing them, except maybe that guy you know. I get why so many people think this way. Is this not how the world operates? If our co-workers do their jobs well, well, we accept them. If they don't, we reject them. This is how the world operates. Perform well, then you get blessings. And guess what? This is how every other religion other than Christianity operates. Follow the rules established by the, by the religion or by the leader. And then guess what? The deity blesses. But this is not how the Ten Commandments, nor any of the other commandments in Scripture, works. God does not speak his Ten Commandments and say, now, do these, and then you'll have my favor. 
How do the Ten Commandments begin? Most people jump to verse 3. The first command, you shall have no other gods before me. That's how they begin. But no, the Ten Commandments have a preamble, just like our U.S. Constitution has a preamble wherein it sets the foundational principles upon which the Constitution is based. So too, the Ten Commandments have a preamble. What is the preamble of the Ten Commandments? Look at it. It's the amazing words in verse 2. I am the Lord. Remember, that's God's name, Yahweh. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God speaks on this mountain to his people and says, I am Yahweh, your God, the one true God, the only God who's ever existed, the only God who isn't a creation of human imagination. This God, Yahweh, says, I'm your God. I'm already your God. You are already my people. I'm the God who already loves you and cherishes you. After that, what does Yahweh say? He says, I'm Yahweh, your God, who what? Brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I'm the God who's saved you. God wants his people to get something straight, and you and I need to get it straight as well. God, in his grace, saves you. Then he calls you to joyful obedience. The law of God comes after the grace of God. We must get this straight, otherwise we think God gives us law so that we can work to earn his acceptance. Typical human understanding holds to the falsehood that we human beings are, basically we're, we're sufficiently good enough people that of course God would accept us if we would just do a little work and clean ourselves up a little bit. In other words, God gives us commandments so that we can take our pretty decent lives and just polish them up a bit, and then God accepts us. But no, look at these Israelites. When you look at them, those people gathered around the mountain, are they pretty decent people who just need a little polishing up? No. As you remember, as as we've been reading through this book, they're half-hearted people who continually grumbled and complained and rebelled. If we were to form a committee this morning and investigate their lives and ask the question, should we give them salvation? I think the definitive answer would be no. They don't deserve a relationship with God, but he lovingly chooses to be their God anyway. He saves them by grace. Then he gives them his commandments so that they will now know what it looks like to be loved by God and to belong to God and to live in his kingdom. First grace, then law, not the other way around. God is saying, you already have my acceptance and blessing. God is saying, follow my commandments not to earn my love because you already have my love. Now, isn't it true, Moses, God usually spoke to Moses and then Moses took the word to God's people, but not this time. They're all gathered around that mountain so, so they can hear God speak directly. God wants this. It's that important that his people hear what we're discussing this morning. And it's important for us too. Why are we to live out God's commands? What is our proper motivation? Is it, is it fear? Is it guilt? Pride? No. Our motivation is this. We welcome God's commands because God first welcomed us. We accept God's commands because God first accepted us. We love God's commands because God first loved us. 
which is why the Apostle John wrote, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. John is saying, when you've experienced God's love, you love him and his commandments. And they're not a burden, but rather they are a delight. Our motivation for obeying God is his love for us and our love for him. Understand this. If you have any other motivation for embracing the Ten Commandments, it is wrong. If If you... Obey God's commands to avoid guilty feelings or out of pride or not to, so as not to look bad or, or anything else. Your motivation is corrupt. This is why Jesus told his disciples these simple words in John 14, verse 15. He said to them, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. What is our motivation to joyfully receive God's law and obey him? Love, love of our heavenly father who loved us before the foundation of the world. Love for Jesus who, while we were still sinners, died for us. And isn't it true when you you love someone, you will do anything for them, no matter how difficult, just because you love them. You know, right after Leslie and I were engaged, um, I mean like a week later, she had to go out to Colorado for the whole summer. She was a mountaineering guy, took trips um, up in the mountains at a Young Life camp, uh, backpacking in the Colorado mountains. And Leslie isn't a complainer, but she did tell me a few times when we talked on the phone how much she wished she had real half-and-half half cream for her coffee. See, the base camp was so far away from civilization that all they had was like that powdery stuff. I and mean, we all know that that's junk, Right. Towards the end of summer, I drove 23 hours to see her and bring her half and half. Once there, early in the morning, I snuck up behind her in the kitchen, and the camp director, seeing me behind her, asked her, Leslie, what is the one thing you want most right now? Not seeing me, she said, I really want some creamer for my coffee. But more than that, I want to see Mark. Then she turned and saw me standing there with a carton of half and half. When you love someone, to do what pleases them is no burden at all. The law of God is gracious. It flows from his love. His commandments His commands come to us, not so that we can do them in order to earn God's acceptance. We, We desire to do them because... In Christ, we already have God's acceptance. So let me ask you, how does what we just discussed correct your understanding of the commands of God? How do they help you? So the law of God is gracious. Also, the law of God is good. Isn't it true there's like a little anarchist in, inside all of us when it comes to God's law? For some reason, we think that God's law stifles our lives, that it shackles us from having fun, that true freedom can only happen when there are no rules. Just let me live and do as I please. And so we need to embrace and address this morning is this overarching truth that the, that the law of God is good. Now, it's really good. 
And when we come to understand the law of God is good, we will, like the psalmist, declare, your law is my delight. How do we get there? Well, we must believe that God's commands are good. So, first, God's laws are good because, one, they reflect God's good character. In one of his famous dialogues, Plato posed the following question. See how you would answer it. Does God command the law because the law is good, or is the law good because God commands it? What's your answer? How about both? The law, with all of its goodness, springs from the goodness of God's character. As Phil Riken states, the law is good because God is good, and his goodness penetrates every aspect of his law. Take the first command, for instance. You shall have no other gods before me. Let me ask you, how is this law good for mankind? Because really there is no God other than him, ultimately. In saying you shall have no other God before me, Yahweh is doing good by you. See, to live in in the world that God created as if God doesn't exist, or as if there are greater things in this world to live for, is essentially to live a lie that will in the end lead to ruin. Maybe not immediately, but eventually. And so when you experience God's grace, and you love him above all else, and desire to place him above all else, trust me, your life becomes full of goodness. This first command is good for us. If we would but believe it and embrace it. Well, guess what? The Old Testament has 613 commands. I didn't spend all week looking them up, but that's what I've been told by a couple commentators. That's including the Ten Commandments. They all reflect his good character. Take, for instance, this command from Deuteronomy 22, verse 8. Maybe you've studied it before. God says, When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house, if anyone should fall for it. Now, a parapet is a wall or a fence around the roof of your house. In ancient days, people spent a lot of time on their roofs. Parapets keep people from falling off and dying and making you guilty and feeling sorrowful and and ashamed. Now, why does God command a parapet? Because God is good. (laughs) Because God values life. He wants people not to fall from roofs. But we don't want to spend the money for parapets or fences around our pools. God's laws are good. They reflect his character, his his love, his justice, his desire for healthy relationships, his desire for strong communities. Now, are you able to wrap your head around the truth that God's commands are good because God himself is good? Next, God's law is good because it promotes freedom and flourishing. Now, that's probably the exact opposite of what most people think. How is it possible that the laws of God promote freedom? How do they cause us to flourish? I'm glad you asked. Think this through with me. If there is a God above, and I do believe there is, and he created all things for his glory so that they would reflect his goodness and joy and delight, and if he made mankind in his image, as Genesis 2 says, and if he gave mankind, he gave us this glorious calling to to reflect his image in earth, to be image bearers of God himself, 
to walk this earth and, and to, to create, uh, to, to be married and healthy marriages, to, to have wonderful families, to, to create flourishing societies, to, to create beautiful culture. If this is true, then the good question to ask is, then how on earth are we so messed up? How is it that societies are corrupt, that people have such a hard time of getting along, that there's so much sorrow and brokenness and vanity and selfishness and evil in this world? Once again, thankfully, the Bible gives us an answer. You don't have to go very far. Three chapters in, Genesis 3. Human beings are not the people we know we should be because our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God. And with their fall, we've all fallen with them. Remember what I always say. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. It's not out there. It's in here. We like to blame others. We like to be on our own islands of innocence and, and hurling insults uh, at other people. The problem is within. Jesus said this. And notice how he, he um, speaks of the, the later part of the Ten Commandments. He says, Jesus says, out of our own hearts comes all kinds of things. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Jesus is saying, stop pointing your fingers at others and, and look inside. You know, last century, there was a newspaper in England that posed a question. and They wanted people to write in their answers. The question was, what's wrong with the world? To which the, a Christian theologian wrote the briefest answer possible. Dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? I am. Until you get to that point of realizing the problem's not out there, it's in here. His commands are for other people. His commands are for occasions when you feel a little bit bad, like maybe you need to clean up your life. The world is not right because none of us are right. Now, with this in mind, here's how the law of God promotes freedom and flourishing. The law of God restrains evil in us and in our society. The law of God does what? It, 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 it gives us boundaries within which, within which we are free to live as we see fit. In other words, they put up a parapet around our life and around societies. And if there is evil in the world and evil in us, then God is good and right to do this. When his law is followed, evil is restrained and our lives flourish. But even more so, take, take for instance the second command. Essentially, if you boil it down, it says, you shall not make an idol to worship, something other than God that you bow, bow down to. Now, what are the idols that we make? Most of us think, I don't make any idols. We all do. Um, for some, material success is their idol. For others, there's an idol of having that perfect family, going on those vacations, taking the photos and posting them so everyone can be envious of you and you can feel like, wow. Now, understand this. If we have any idols in our lives, and I encourage you to search your own heart, maybe ask someone who knows you well, um, if they have any idols in your life, you're actually not free. We are enslaved to our idols. 
For instance, the businessman who bows to the idol of success becomes enslaved to his success. He's not free. How do we know? Because his life becomes lopsided. He stays at work late at night chasing the deal instead of delighting in his bride and his children. He lies to his boss. He misleads his customers. His idol of success owns him. He bows to it. And he cannot flourish as God intends him to. So let me ask you, is God good to give us commands that cause us to think and lay down our idols that we may be free from them? Yes. The laws of God don't enslave us. They enable us to finally live truly free lives. So the law of God promotes freedom and flourishing for those who by faith love God and desire to honor him with their lives. I also notice this. Have you noticed that many of God's commands are negative? You know, don't do this, don't do that. There are many you shall nots in Scripture. Now, many people hear these negative commands and they say, see, that God, he just wants to restrict me. His commands limit me and my freedom. But this is not so. In fact, God's negative commands actually promote freedom for us. How so? Well, consider the negative command, you shall not steal. What is God doing here? And in the big picture, he is addressing how you and I come to possess things. By saying you cannot get possessions by stealing them, do you see what God is doing? He's opening up every other method for obtaining things for us. That one tree in the garden, stay away from that. But all these other trees, they're so wonderful. The fruit is magnificent. You have great freedom. Say you want a new dress. Okay, guys probably won't say that. God says you can't steal the dress. But every other means for getting a dress is available to you. Someone can give you a dress. You can work and save for a dress. Or like most people, just buy it on credit. You can buy the materials and make yourself a dress. But nobody does that anymore, right? Consider the alternative. What if God instead had individual laws laying out all the positive possible ways that you could lawfully obtain a dress. My gosh, the list would be exhaustive, right? You may gain possessions by working for them. You may gain possessions by bartering from them. You may gain possessions by having them given to you. You may gain possessions by finding them. You may gain possessions by inheriting them. Sounds like a Dr. Seuss book. Talk about confusion. Talk about a lot of laws to know. Talk about no freedom. Consider this, how much more free is your life when God simply says, do not steal. Now go live. I know that was a lot to cover, but do you, do you now see that God's commands actually promote freedom and flourishing when embraced in faith? They become what the psalmist declares in Psalm 119, verse 105. Your lamp, your, your, excuse me, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. What a good way to look at that. 
So the law of God is good because it ref- it's a reflection of God's good character. It promotes freedom to live as God intends us to live. Thirdly, the law of God is good in this very special way. You ready? The law of God is good because it points us to Christ. See, the law of God has a special way of helping us to see that we're actually in desperate need of God's mercy and grace. See, the law of God is good in that it makes us see that we are not good. Here's what Dr. Phil, not that one, Dr. Phil Williams says about the law. Here's what he says. Listen, the law is a light that reveals how dirty the room is, not the broom that sweeps it clean. The law isn't a broom for me and you to use to to clean up our lives a little bit so God finally accepts us. The law only really allows us to see how dirty our lives are and how hopeless we are, save God's mercy and grace. Now, what is it that most people do when they, when they do kind of have that oh my gosh moment and they, they realize that they aren't the people they know they should be, let alone the people that God's law requires? Typically what they do is what? Well, they grab the law, they pick it up, and they try to do it. As if that can really clean you. Give me some rules from heaven so I can clean up my life. But remember, the, the law of God isn't a broom that sweeps the, room, sweeps the room clean. It only helps us to see that the room is dirty and in need of cleaning. And thankfully, God provides a broom. God sent his son to live and to die in our place. Though we aren't the people we know we should be, Jesus Christ was for you and me. He is the only person who has ever walked this earth who has perfectly lived out the law of God. When, when teaching his disciples, Jesus said these words. You can find them in, in uh, Matthew 5. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. People are like thinking, wow, Jesus is great. I mean, he's just hanging with sinners and stuff. He, he must be here to say it's okay. No, Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What does Jesus mean when he says he came to fulfill the law? He means he came to live the life that you and I should have lived according to the law of God. And he came to die the death that you and I deserve to die according to the law of God. So that by faith in him, his life and all of his merits and all of his blessings as the son of God become ours as a gift. God's grace comes first, then obedience. Listen, mercy and grace come to us in Jesus. The Apostle John wrote these words. They're beautiful. He says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Remember how the people trembled when they heard God's commands? They're like, Moses, you go. We don't don't want to hear from God directly. You be our mediator. It's fearful just to hear the words of God and to not have a good mediator. Moses was a fallen man, and he mediated for God temporarily, but he really points us to what? To Christ, the the true mediator between God and man. The one who, unlike Moses, climbed the mountain into the fury and the fire for us and took our sin 
and rose again from the dead, saying, I've done it for you. That's who we have in Jesus Christ. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who came to win our acceptance with God. And so when you look at the law and, and you have that epiphany that, that maybe you aren't the person you need to be and God is holy and worthy of our trembling and that we, you come to realize that you need mercy, well then, guess what? God provides mercy in his son. Understand this. Jesus went to the cross so that all the sin you carry gets laid on him. If you believe in Christ as your Savior, then the dirty room of your soul has been wiped clean forever and ever. First grace, then commands. So the law of God isn't a means to save us. It's meant to reveal our need for a Savior and then point us to Christ. Only then, after you've trusted in Christ, is the law of God now a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. It's only then, when you see how much God loves you in Christ, that you love God and delight in Him and His commands. Now, not that from that day forth you do them perfectly. The Christian life is a constant battle, is it not, between our desire to honor God with our lives and our fleshly desires that so easily give in to temptation. Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I don't know about you, but my flesh is often weak. Which is why at the beginning of the sermon, I said that I don't want you to memorize the Ten Commandments until you first understood the law of God is gracious. The law of God is good. Which leads to our final point of application. Let me ask you, Christian, how do you respond when you fall short, when you give in to temptation, when you, when you fail in living out God's commands, when you gossip or demean another person, when you lust, when you pursue sexual immorality, when you cheat or, or lie or lose your temper? What is it that you do? Well, there's three ways you can respond. Only one of them is good. You ready? One way is to ignore your sin, to downplay it, to tell yourself it's okay, it's not as... It's not as bad as at least those other people, right? We tend to downplay our sin. That's not the way of the gospel. The other way is to see your sin and to see the holy and good laws of God and and feel guilty. And so resolve all the more to do a better job next time. And so you determine to, to pick up the law and try a little bit harder. Maybe this time it'll work. But then again, there you are, feeling like a failure. Sound familiar? That's me. I've experienced it. I'm a little bit of both of those sometimes. Thankfully, though, there's a third way. What is the way of the gospel for Christians when we sin? When we fall short of the good commands of God, what are we to do? Well, the way of the gospel isn't to run from God in his law, nor is it to run towards the law of God. We are to run back to the gospel, back to the cross again. Only then can we safely pick up his commands again. See, the cross of Christ isn't there just for the first time we look into God's law and realize that we're sinners in need of a Savior. It's for every day of our lives. See, the gospel is something that we need to to preach to ourselves daily. So the gospel allows us to hear these words of Jack Miller. They're kind of funny, but true. Cheer up. You're far more sinful than you ever imagined. (laughs) 
but also far more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you ever dared dream. Christian, when we fall short and the temptation is just to go straight to the law, we need to go back to that. Jesus isn't surprised that you and I continue to stumble. He knew that before he called us into a relationship with him. He knew we'd be fickle. He, he knew that we would be faithless at times. The gospel, the cross of Christ, it allows us to genuinely look at the sin in our lives without making excuses. To see what God has done for us. I don't know about you, but each time I go back to that cross, I'm more and more amazed at God's grace towards Mark Middlecoff. Why on earth would you call me? I'm like those Israelites around the mountain. And it causes me to see if God's love is this great, his law must be that good. And by his mercy, by his grace that strengthens me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to endeavor to live a life that's holy and pleasing to him. And when I fall, guess what? I'm going back to the gospel. At least that's my hope. Now, isn't the love of God astonishing? I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. But now that we have it, let us love God and enjoy obeying him. Once again, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Let's pray. Father, oh, how we need to get your commands right, that we can see your heart and understand your hope for your commands. Your commands are gracious, and your commands are good. Maybe respond with, with delight. May your spirit give us not just the ability to see your goodwill, but to do it, we pray. Amen.